Hi, welcome to the eighth Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. The theme of the show today is women in medicine. We're going to be hearing from Alex Evis, Director of Analytics at Emis Health, who talks with us about, amongst other things, careers in informatics and software development. Emis is one of Womanthology's corporate partners, so we'd like to take this opportunity to thank them for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and also the written magazine. We also meet Casey Cable, Assistant Professor in Pulmonary Medicine and Critical Care, who shares what it's like to be at the front line of the COVID second wave. We'll also be hearing from Inesh Santos, Womanthology's Associate Editor, who is going to be talking us through the written stories in the new issue. Alex Evis, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, looking forward to chatting with you. We've got some hopefully some exciting questions for you. So uh, let's kick off by finding about your educational background and career to date, if that's okay. Ooh, educational background, thats that seems like a very long time ago. <laughs> um, I suppose, I'll, I won't bother with school, but uh, I did an experimental psychology degree at Oxford, which was quite fun and uh, left there and I've had a bit of a weird and wonderful career um, doing uh, lots of different things. I actually worked for the NHS, one of my first jobs. Um, I worked for Wandsworth Primary Care Trust um, and South West London and St George's Mental Health Trust teaching prisoners in HMP Wandsworth. So it was one of the first projects to in, improve the mental health and well-being of, of, of prisoners. So I ended up at was probably 23 teaching life skills courses in the biggest male prison in in the UK. So I taught anger management, assertiveness and positive thinking, and relationship skills, which uh, which is was was definitely my favourite. Seeing as I, I still haven't, I don't think I've nailed those yet myself. <laughs> I think um, all of those skills so, are really yeah. really useful skills for life, aren't they? Really, all of them. Yeah, yeah. It was quite pioneering at the time because nobody was really talking about positive mental health then um, and well-being. And, you know, now it's kind of, or particularly sort of post-COVID, it's something we talk about all the time, isn't it? So from that was one of my early jobs. Um, I worked in corporate finance for eight years, turned to the dark side, to the private sector. Then I left there wanting to do something more socially rewarding and set up my first uh, my first business. I was a governor at a special needs school at the time and wanted to do something in the care sector. So uh, set up a business called Alcove, um, which was looking, sort of using technology to keep people living independently in their own homes so they didn't have to move into care homes. So a bit of sort of passive home monitoring, which would send alerts to, to loved ones or carers to, you know, if anything happened that was out of the ordinary. So if somebody had a fall or they hadn't moved or you know, weren't using, could be dehydrated because they're not using a tap a lot or not drinking enough water, etc. I exited that business and started a business called Dovetail, which 
was really set up to tackle a problem that I'd encountered in, in the first business, Alcove, about how you share data, medical data between health and actually at the time social care. So when people were leaving hospital, there was very little data sharing, which was actually putting people's health and even lives at risk because information wasn't traveling with them. Um, to social care because it was NHS to non-NHS organisational data sharing. So tackled that problem with Dovetail Lab um, and that got uh, acquired by EMIS Group, which is where I currently work at the moment as the Director of Analytics In when that was acquired in November 2018. So I've been at EMIS Group a couple of years now. What's it like to have your company become part of a bigger group? What's that been like? Yeah, it's, to- it's very different. So, you know, you, we moved from a, a, a small a group of eight people to uh, 1,500 people, uh, a, a big company. So, you know, there's always differences between sort of small, very young companies and then, you know, big established companies. But the opportunity to to deploy the technology that we, we built at, um, at Dovetail to the the market size and the reach that a company like EMIS has, um, which processes the data of 40 million patients um, and the ability to help those patients have greater control over their medical information um, and work with the clinicians um, that EMIS works with, which is you know, 10,000 10, plus, uh, was, was just a sort of opportunity too good to be true in terms of where we wanted to, wanted to get to. So it was, it was quite exciting. And so... The, the software that you created gives patients full control of their healthcare records using blockchain-based technology. Have I got that right? Yes. And so I'm, uh, can I ask you to give us an overview, and I appreciate this is quite a complex area, but could you give us an overview of how this works and w- what we mean by blockchain? I, I believe that blockchain is a type of distributed ledger technology. Is that right? So yeah, so a distributed ledger essentially being, I mean, in my very simple, simplistic world, I think of it as a sort of a network of nodes or computers, um, and you store a copy of uh, all information on each computer, and the, the information that you store also has a history of of. So that's the block also has the history of the previous block so you would have the information and, and date and a timestamp um, of the what you're adding to the ledger now but also what you what you added to the ledger previously and that's what the, what creates the chain so it's all connected I don't know if that helps or just makes you more confused but yeah it is a dis- distributed because it's distributed across a network of different computers yeah sorry so it just and but the the date and time stamp is really important because it's it's also used in things like finance is that right yeah i mean the way we do it so what we store on the blockchain is a record of the consent to share data so you would use a any kind of patient facing application or software i would check that you are who you are so some identity services a bit like the banks use with you know take a selfie and a photo of your of your id document uh, and then I would ask you, are you happy um, to share information between your GP and um, uh, Oxford University who were doing some research on uh, leukemia? And you'd go, oh, uh, sounds okay. Sounds good. Yep. Okay. I'm happy to do that. So you you consent to that. You tick that. And a record of that consent is stored on, on a distributed ledger. So that's a permanent 
what's called immutable records. So you can't go back, you can't go back and edit that. You can, if, if some mistake has been made, you can add another block to the chain saying a previous record was incorrect, but you can never go back and cross through it or delete, a, delete any information, which is what makes it really good for very sensitive information in particular, um, like finance information or medical information. Fantastic. I understand all of that. You've piloted software giving patients access, visibility and control over their health data in the NHS. Can you tell us a little bit about that without giving away any secrets? No, that was that was our very first um, that was our very first project um, that we did in 2018, actually now, so a few years back. So looking at sharing sharing data specific to diabetes with different organizations that were, were um, involved in providing care. So um, that could be a, a, a charity, a third sector organization that was providing sort of structured education courses um, to help you manage your diabetes better, social care agency, and also a patient facing application. So you could actually see information from your medical record um, about your diabetes. And that was connecting up this almost like a virtual shared health record um, using the technology. Can I ask you the million dollar question? How is COVID-19 affecting what you're doing at the moment? It's certainly from an analytics perspective, it has been incredibly, um, incredibly busy. There is obviously the need, it's unprecedented really, the need to get data quicker, more data and and join that up across sort of local geographies all the way to kind of national geographies and 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 it needs to to be done much much quicker than it's ever needed to um to be done before so it's per, we've we've been involved in a lot of covid related research whether that's sort of epidemiology oh, I managed to get that word out i can never normally say that in one go that was i've aced it there um or whether it's recruiting um, patients to clinical trials. So there was uh, clinical trials that we've done in participation with Oxford University where they uh, are testing um, medications that already exist and proven um, to see if they could be sort of rapid treatments for COVID-19. And we did a big survey in partnership with Oxford University and the Royal College of General Practitioners Research and Surveillance Centre to... um, engage patients through our patient access app and engage them in terms of what symptoms they were having in relation to COVID, but also the kind of the secondary impact. So the mental health impact, the socioeconomic impact of lockdown. We had over 50,000 responses to that. And now we've got researchers looking at the sort of the, the trends and, um, and insights that can be generated from that sort of data. So yeah, it's been, it's, it's been busy. <laughs> Um, Alex, you're an advocate of tech for good. Uh, could you tell us why you're so passionate about this and why it's so important? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about how how far technology has come, um, and I, I don't know if you're old enough to remember pre-iPhone days. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Thank, <laughs> thank you for thinking that I might not be old enough, Alex. That's very kind. So, you know, if you, if you think back to the time uh, that, the pre-iPhone and how much more convenient life uh, has become with the use of technology. You know, it's fantastic that you can buy things 
as you just as you said earlier you're a, a bit of an amazon addict that how convenient it is that you know with one click now you can you can get things to deliver to your door the next day but if you think about how powerful that is if you could harness that to help the people that need it the most how like the you know the potential of that it is pretty exciting and i think that's where the advances are yet to really, really be seen that, you know, we haven't necessarily yet in healthcare or care seen these sort of step changes um, that technology could bring about. I, that, that's, that's to come. I mean, obviously, there's a slight with healthcare where everything has to be, you know, evidence-based, clinically safe. It's not surprising we're a little bit further behind, you know, consumer commercial uses of, of technology. Um, because there's there's a, a much longer um, time to bring a product to market, but uh, you know the exciting thing is we're on the road and we're just at the beginning of it, and and there's going to be some some uh, you know real change that's going to come very shortly. And I suppose really following on from the COVID thing as well, though, so it's moved things forward very quickly in terms of like doing kind of virtual consultations and and things like that, which makes a lot of things a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's just the beginning, really. So I think it's the, you know, the choice that has been provided to the patient, uh, as you know, as we have seen with COVID, is is amazing. And and, and still, you know, actually, the, the preferred, I think, the biggest shift has been to the telephone rather than surprisingly, really, rather than video. But uh, but yeah, now the fact that you can manage your condition, there's some amazing apps where you can manage your long term conditions. You can do video consultate, remote consultations with your your care providers, and you know we're starting to see now sort of the clinical automation and intelligence being built in, whether that's speech to text to coded text for for clinicians rather than sort of note taking or whether it's it's algorithms that can be built into clinical systems that can flag that you're at risk of a particular condition um, by you know processing terabytes of of health data in minutes then like you can see that the potential is huge and um, Alex, you've been recruiting um, a lot for now. Have I got this right for informatics-based roles? Yeah, informatics and, and software um, development. So in in the um, the build of our analytics platform, so it's a cloud-based uh, analytics platform. Um, we've we've been recruiting. Uh, a, a, a team of both software engineers, data scientists, and uh, informaticians, um, and, and particularly clinical informaticians. So, how to bring the the data science and the domain expertise into the same room? Because you know you really need that that clinical input, and particularly into health data is very very specialist. So, you really need the clinical input to understand uh, to understand it and, and get the most value from it. And could you tell us um, why it's an, such an interesting and exciting area to work in, really? So, in, and in terms of, uh, we, we've done a lot with EMIS. They're really, really into diversity and inclusion and getting the gender balance in there. Why is it such an exciting area to work in? I think it's, it's the next step in healthcare, sort of data-driven technologies. As I just talked about, I get pretty enthusiastic about the um the potential to make a difference 
you know, I'd like to think that the, that the people that join our team are also enthusiastic about it uh, because it's super exciting. I mean, if you think about the workforce of the NHS, I think it's about 70% female in terms of the care providers. It, it's one of those roles that's traditionally a bit gender biased, that there's more women in the care providing roles than men. Yet at sort of management level and innovation level, that that ratio is switched. I think it's a real opportunity for women to get involved in building solutions that make the working lives easier of the amazing people that work in the NHS on the front line delivering care. Um, but also we're all patients, right? So all the work that we do in the analytics team ultimately benefits ourselves you know whether that's uh, lengthening our lives making us healthier keeping us fit um, and that's pretty special you don't get to do that every day when you go to work normally absolutely so well we're coming towards the end alex we're, we're uh, whipping through everything um what is coming up next for you what are you excited mm-hmm. about so we're just at the start of our journey um, in the analytics team. So we've launched our first uh, product called Explorer, which is part of the EMISX analytics suite. So it's a self-service business intelligence tool, which is really there to help our NHS customers be able to search and query large, large healthcare data sets um, at, at, at speed. So giving them much, much quicker insights so they can do sort of cold face analytics, create insights, change change their working practices accordingly and then see how the impact of that but we are working on quite a lot of exciting new functionality which will be um, coming out next year touched on it a little bit earlier but um, the idea of sort of embedding um, algorithms that can process larger look at large large amounts of healthcare data and then flag people uh, who might be at at risk, so supporting diagnosis or flag people that might be suitable for a particular treatment or, or other intervention. And, and that's where I think it's it starts to get really interesting and we'll really see the, the potential of analytics uh, in, in the NHS come to, to fruit. So um, Alex, th- th- thank you so much for speaking with us today. That was super interesting. And can I ask, will you come back and speak with us again? Yeah, absolutely. I can tell you about the, the, the next set of things that we do in the analytics department. We will, we will look forward to that. So thank you so much for your time. You take care and stay safe. Hello, my name is Ines Santos, I am the Associate Editor for Womanphology and I'm here to tell you all about our new Women in Medicine issue. Stories include Rachel Lambert Forsyth, Chief Executive of British Pharmacological Society, informs us about the background of the society and tells us about Pharmacology 2020, their flagship annual meeting. Vice President of Women's Medical Federation, Professor Chloe Arkin, shares with us how she works to improve the lives of those who live with HIV and how she joined WMF to affect positive change and support and champion women in their careers after she was trolled on social media. 
she still lets us know about their autumn virtual conference and future plans to tackle gender inequality. Also from Women's Medical Federation, Dr. Heidi Monsi shares how she changed career to work in medicine and tells us about her role as a medical legal consultant for a medical defense organization. Jonathan Cliff, a midwife at Warrington and Halton Teaching Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, talks about his pride in being a midwife and how there should be a change in attitudes towards gender equality. Joe Balfour, managing director and a founding member of Cambridge Rare Disease Network, tells us how she got into teaching children with special education needs, how the network stayed connected during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the challenges of organizing a virtual event, RareFest. Dr. Helen Meese, founder and CEO of The Care Machine, talks about working on the NHS Nightingale hospitals during the COVID outbreak with the support of more than a thousand engineers. Furthermore, Helen tells us how the role of clinical engineering is gaining recognition. Finally, Dr. Natalie Shanka, co-founder of the Human Milk Foundation, tells us about the UK's first independent non-profit human milk bank and informs us how womenfology readers can get involved. Do check out our website www.womanfology.co.uk to read the full stories. And that is all for me. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast, Casey Cable. How are you doing, Casey? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, it's an honor. And we've got around time differences and everything, haven't we? So we've, we've, we're, we're truly global now. <laughs> so, uh, Casey, could you start by telling us about your educational background and career to date? Yeah, so I have, um, so, so I'm, I'm a physician, a pulmonary critical care physician. Uh, I've had I've had a little bit of a winding path, I would say. I haven't had the most direct path, but, but it's my path. And I think that's important. Uh, I think there's some stigma about not having the not having a direct path, but uh, but no. Once again, I think I, had, I took the more scenic route. So it, uh, you know, starting out, it took me. Um, gosh, I think I calculated it up. I think it's 18 years of training and and, and degrees. It's it's been a while, but you know, I bounced around to a couple of different undergrad institutions initially. You know, before I found the right fit, and I think that's important. Um, found the right fit and graduated um, with a uh, in chemistry and biology degrees, and really fell in love with with research. And chemistry is kind of where you know was, was my first love, and ended up getting a master's in in clinical and master's in uh, in analytical chemistry, and had the opportunity to work on a Mars lander, which was amazing. We can talk more about that, which was so much fun. And and then from there, you know, my love of research kind of shifted towards towards the medical field, and and kind of then how 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 chemistry plays into plays into the body. I think kind of got, kind of drew me in that direction, and ended up going to medical school. Although halfway through medical school, did research pulling me back. Did a year of research at the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, and then finished my medical degree. Then did three years of internal medicine um, residency training. 
And then on top of that, decided I wanted to pursue special specialize into pulmonary critical care. Where that's another three years of training. So specializing into that and, and what we call a fellowship. And then after that, did one more year, once again, research coming back in, doing a, re a master's of clinical research, once again, bringing research now into, into kind of health and how I can help my patients in, in once uh, do better. And, and then ultimately, finally, I am now here at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU Health, as an actual practicing attending, finally. <laughs> so that's, that's, my, that's my long, uh, torturous path, uh, but it's been, it's been absolutely fun. <laughs> You know, research kind of binding it all together, just you know, questioning, questioning things. Why is it things are this way? Why is that this way? And, you know, just wanting to, wanting to learn more, kind of binding that all together. Uh -huh. Passionately curious. Yes, very much so. I, I, that's a wonderful way of putting it. I think I got that from somewhere else. I don't think that was actually from me. I don't know who to credit for that. I'm going to look that up because uh, is it, maybe it's Einstein. I'm not sure. I will, I will look it up. We'll find out. I love it. Well, thank you. So now you are an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care. So what does this role involve on a day-to-day -day basis? So it, 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 that's, what, that's what makes it so fun. It involves a variety of different things. I wear different hats on different days. So I work in, in the, the medical respiratory ICU. So it's our critical, just our critically ill patients. A lot of them are on ventilators or respirators, as some, some people know them as. Um, and just very, very, very sick, critical patients. Um, and so I think that's, that's one role that I have. Um, on other days, I am pulmonary, so I do lungs. So I see you know, any sort of lung problems in the hospital, on consults. Uh, I also have a pulmonary clinic. So I, you know, I treat my asthma, COPD, uh, just a variety of outpatient pulmonary issues. Um, and then on top of that, I also do rapid response in the hospital. So that's what that, I know. What that is, is running all over the hospital anytime anyone on the floor or any patient is, is kind of starting, starting to crash, is, is sick, and we try to go and help stabilize them to either hopefully keep them out of the ICU, but if they do need the ICU, then we can help facilitate that. So day-to-day, -day it's, it's, it's different. Uh, every, every day is different, but, but I think that's, that's what makes it fun, and you never know what you're going to walk into. So you mentioned being an attending. So I, I now can I confess, I watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy uh, in a very short space of time. So all of a sudden I started to kind of get the lingo and they would always say, oh, crack his chest. Medicine is a whole nother, it's a whole nother language. And so, so absolutely, you know, we get our medical students and then once you graduate medical school, um, you're technically a doctor. You know, you are now a doctor. Now you might not know anything, <laughs> but you're a doctor. You might not know anything practical, we'll say. And then you go into residency is the first first kind of round of training. And, and, and that varies depending on what, what you want to do. Internal medicine residency, it's three years of training. You know, pediat you know pediatrics is, you know, three to four. Surgery, can, you know, surgery a residency keep in five years so that's kind of your first first range of training uh, your first go about and sometimes they refer to that first year as an intern so if you're that you're that first year you're kind of the low man on the totem pole you called the intern but then after that you know you're a resident you're a resident and then after you graduate residency you can then pass your board so I'm board certified in internal medicine and then residency two <laughs> we call fellowship 
gives it a different fancy your name. We don't feel like it's residency too, but it is. It's, it's another round of training. But as a fellow, it's just, and it comes from you know the, the Greek training of you know now now you're in fellowship. It is further specialization. You know, if you want to be a cardiologist, a heart doctor, you're now a cardiology fellow, or I was a pulmonary critical care fellow. So you're kind of the next level of training. And then after you graduate your fellowship. You can then sit for your boards in those degrees. So I'm now board certified in pulmonary, and I'm now also board certified in critical care. So I've got I'm collecting boards, <laughs> triple board certified. And then after that, you become an attending, and that's you are now. I am now officially an actual doctor. I suppose <laughs> like now, I am now on my own. I'm now working for the hospital. I, I am on my own. I don't need to have anyone sign off on what I do or, or kind of supervise what I do. So that's the attending is kind of what what we what we. It's kind of the ultimate goal. And uh, and from there, yes, I'm now I'm an assistant professor, is the, the starting, and then from from assistant, then I hopefully will go up for a promotion here. You know some point to um, associate is the next level and then full professors you've made it um, but yeah that's that's kind of the the jargon and the lingo for for where we are here here at VCU this is a, a, a teaching institution because you can have private hospitals that are just solely you know just doctors you know attendings but here we are a training institution we have our medical school and I've got when I when I'm on service doing my pulmonary or I'm in the ICU. Uh, I've got my, my, I've got my medical students and my, and my team of residents and fellows. So it's, it's really big. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's big collaboration and I get to do a lot of teaching and which, which I really enjoy. And you specialize in improving sepsis outcomes. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about sepsis and its effects and the work that you're doing to improve patients outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so sepsis is really, it's, it's the body's kind of overwhelming and kind of life-threatening response to an infection. Um, I mean, it's, it, and it's, it's significant. Um, there's a range of sepsis from kind of mild all the way up to kind of really severe septic shock patients that are, you know, that, that bring them into my ICU. And it's, it's once again, it's the body's response to, to an infection and it's almost like it just kind of spirals out of control and it affects every organ system. And we, it, you know, the mortality of sepsis is, I mean, postulated in between, you know, 15 to 40 percent. It's significant, and and it's a large proportion of patients. I think I know in the United States, um, I mean, it's the number one, you know, hospital cost of of patients being admitted for is is for sepsis, and um, it's a significant disease. And, and aside from just treating what we can, we don't really have like a targeted drug or, or kind of intervention to, to really kind of stem this. And I think there's been, you know, hundreds of trials trying to find something to, to really target and kind of turn this around. But no, really kind of trying to find out how we can, you know, improve that, their outcomes. Because once again, given how high the mortality is, sort of talking about, you know, early antibiotics, early recognition. Can we, if we, if we can find, if we can detect it earlier, then can we, can we better treat it and, and hopefully maybe stem and kind of reduce this, the, the mortality of the impact um, of sepsis. And so, so I'm on a couple of different alliances to kind of not only on the, on the clinical side, once again, that's where my clinical research is coming into play, you know, figuring out how can we better identify sepsis early and then help, um, help you know, once again, reduce, improve the outcomes for, for our patients, but also to get the word out there that, you know, because I'm not a lot of, people have heard of what sepsis is. I was going to ask about that. People don't quite often know when they've got yeah. it either. 
No, no, you're right. You know, they oftentimes people sit at home with fevers, cough, not feeling well, and so then that can delay delay getting treatment or even identification of it, um, or you know, just getting the word out there that sepsis is it's a thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's on the order, you know, of, of killing, you know, over, you know, a, a Bo you know, there's one estimate, you know, in the United States, it kills over, you know, daily a, a Boeing 747 full of people every day. It's 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 it's. it's it's significant. And so, so I'm on a couple of alliances once again to try to just on social media to try to just get, you know, educating, educating our population of this is, you know, this is what this is and this is how we can kind of treat it and then how, and what we're doing to try to recognize it and then improve outcomes. So that's kind of where I, where I'm, where my passions lie right now. Well, we're very lucky to have you in that area. Oh, and how is COVID-19 affecting the work you're doing at the moment, dare I ask? Oh my gosh, you know, when I when I first decided to, to specialize in pulmonary critical care, I never thought I would be on the forefront of a global wide pandemic. Never thought I was gonna be a COVID a COVID consultant, a COVID COVID expert. We're now being called in the hospital because we're, you know, it's such a lung disease in critical care. And so I mean that it just <laughs> the two my two specialties collide <laughs> in this in this pandemic. It's it's been significant. Um, it's been, you know, it's been taxing. Um, you know, we, I've taken care of, of dozens and dozens and dozens of COVID patients. Um, luckily, you know, I've, we've had appropriate um, PPEs, you know, the, to protect ourselves. Um, but it's, it's, it's just such an unknown. So we're learning so much about COVID every day still. It's such, it's such a unique and devastating disease. And, you know, once again, being on the forefront of it, seeing it, seeing the devastating effects and just how it just can just ravage through an entire family or community is just, it's, it's, it's tough, you know. And so, you know, and then, I, you know, I've been, you know, very vocal in trying to get, you know, good, high quality research, you know, out there so you know and trying to promote you know what what's good and what's you know what we can do and I think it's really promoted a lot of collaboration in in our field um, medicines we're very collaborative anyways but I think this has really brought a lot of us together so we sharing what we know what's come come out and also sharing with the world of what you can do like this is real please wear a mask and you know things that things that people can do to protect themselves. So we're kind of in, in the second wave now. But would you say yeah. that, that more is known now from the last time? So people are talking here about their sort of ventilating, more yes. invasive in ventilation. Is they're delaying that now and things like that, for example? Yes, we know a lot more now, kind of about the disease process, kind of some more of the therapies, and not so much the the me, the, med, med, the medicine therapies. But we do we do know about the steroids, and once again, we still we're still involved in clinical trials going on with some of these newer kind of plasma, newer drugs. But once again, you're like you said, how to, how to ventilate them, how to you know we're doing much more. We we, we prone people, we put them on their bellies. <laughs> um, we call it tummy time, you know, and it's it's really that's you know that's been actually huge in in terms of treatments, but also kind of identifying patients early, and you know kind of reducing. Anything that, you know, from the ICU perspective, you know, things that we can do to kind of help and support them. But we've, we've definitely learned a lot. You know, we know these patients tend to actually, they have more blood clots. And once again, we need things that we didn't know before, we're now learning a lot of. And in that is now coming post-ICU syndromes, you know, these, because these, these symptoms are lasting longer. And, and we're also noticing much more, and we knew this before, the effects of being in the ICU and being on a ventilator. It's, you're on a ventilator for weeks. I mean, that, it takes time, even if you, you were young and healthy previously, to, 
it really affects you. You know, your muscles, your mind, your things. Uh, it takes time for all this to come back. And, and we're really kind of starting to focus on that, realizing that we need to help support these patients even, you know, far beyond, you know, them surviving out of the ICU. So, yeah, it's um, definitely, definitely is changing. <laughs> And, and how are we taking care of the people that are taking care as well? So in terms of, uh, we, you, we see the pictures of the people with like the layers and layers of PPE and then you like with the mat, with like really hot oh, faces and marks where your masks have been. I've got pictures and, of myself in full, full garb. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, I look nice today, but no, we're the, typically, it's, <laughs> it's, it's ponytail. It's you're in a full, I mean, I mean, you wouldn't even recognize me um, if, typically on a day-to-day -day basis as I'm going in and out of these rooms. So, no, I think it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of support, internal support, I have to say. I mean, it's, it's a lot of family support, institutional support. Our institution's done a great job. Um, our community's done a great job. Uh, we've had, I can't tell you the amount of food and chocolate <laughs> that gets dropped off to the ICU on a daily basis. And it, it just, it's just heartwarming. You know, it really is. And the community's really come together um, and supported us. And, you know, we support ourselves. We make sure that, hey, how are you doing? You're doing okay. You know, we, we, you know our, we've, we've got free yoga classes. Granted, they're Zoom. But, um, and just really, really trying to find, you know, finding that, that balance and recognizing that when you're overwhelmed or stressed, to take a step back and really, you know, really find time for you. And I've got a great group of girlfriends, honestly, that are not in medicine. We do all sorts of stuff. And we do a weekly Zoom to check in on each other. It's, it's our, it's our, you know, it's our weekly, weekly wine Zoom meeting that, that we that we all get together. And I think that is, that's also amazing. Oh, sounded good to me. And in terms of gender balance in medicine in the U.S., broadly speaking, and I don't expect you to have all the really detailed stats, but broadly speaking, what is your sense of what gender balance is like in medicine in the U.S.? And what changes would you like to see to make medical careers? more accessible there are, there's definitely a gender disparity in medicine there absolutely is and I think it's much much more so at a kind of higher level kind of more the senior level it's more evident at but no it's definitely there and definitely um, I would say more so in different subspecialties as well you know um, historically some of these other some of these critical care fields have been a little more male dominated but we're changing that um, so as the percentage of females graduating from medical school in the United States, as of 2019, actually the percentage of females was actually over 50%. I think it was 50.5%, but still. So, I mean, that's a good thing, but, but that's still not enough to make up for the disparities that we've had years of. Um, so we're, we're slowly making, slowly making progress. I think, I think what needs to happen more so, and it's, it's happening more, is to start promoting females, um, you know, recognizing them, putting them onto more boards, putting them into higher levels of, of powers of, you know, positions of power in higher levels of management, because once again, that's so long that has been very male dominated. And, you know, I'm, you know, slowly getting onto more boards myself, but once again, I think, and then just promoting each other, not only having females promote, and, I'm a huge proponent of females promoting each other. But, you know, having you know having the your your male colleagues also saying, hey, you know, I think she's she you know she would be amazing on this committee, or promoting someone to you know other other positions. So I think I think you know I think that's coming, and I know I've got a lot of amazing male colleagues, and you know that you know that that push me into and and suggest I do these things and kind of promote us. And I think think that's coming. And I think that's extremely important. 
yeah and i yeah i think absolutely so what we do a lot of is having male champions so we we say oh, yes. although it's, it's called womanthology but equally we support everybody if we believe the same thing that we're all we, we all need to support each other then uh, we absolutely support everybody oh, I love that. male champions and i'm involved in a lot of national and international um organizations and committees and you know we have you know a lot of these women in medicine but it's amazing how many men are involved because once again you're right it's not just about just women being there it's you know you need to have it's a collective in here and i think it's, it's all of us needing to understand that, that there are disparities and we need to we need to promote women up absolutely and we'll we'll do our bit to help yeah. and support i agree because you know, i think we, we bring something different different to committees, you know, different and special, different, a different viewpoint. And, and we have, you know, different, different insights. And so I think, I think once again, it's very important to get us, get us involved. I think diversity of thought in general only it helps with problem solving, doesn't it? If you've got lots of different ideas and opinions, then you're more likely to have more different ideas and perspectives about how to solve problems. Exactly. So what is your advice to girls and women who would like to, well, well, a, there's the getting into medicine, but also then there's change because it, it, it strikes me that you've had to work incredibly hard to get where you've got. Sometimes people are quite quick to tell you, oh, well, do you really want to do that? Oh, really? Is it really worth it? And try to try and talk you out of it. So what, what, what is your advice for people who maybe aren't sure or maybe you, know, you get to a certain point and you think, I would like to change, but dare I say I want to change? Oh, no, I agree. I think there's this stigma about change of, like, change is bad, or, oh, why, you know, like, you know, maybe, maybe, you, you know, if you're changing, maybe you had made the wrong decision, or what if you, what if the decision you're changing into is the, is, isn't the right decision? Um, and I think we just need to, I think we need to dissolve that stigma, that, and that obviously I made so many changes, and, and, you know, sometimes I just jumped, jumped into not knowing if it was right or wrong, and, and I think, think there's, there's, not, there's not a wrong decision. You know, that, that's the winding path. It's your path, you know, and even if you make a decision and you need to backtrack, that's the scenic route. You learn something from that. And I think if you gain something from those experiences, it's not, it's not the wrong decision. It's just, it was a decision and you're going to pivot again and change. But I think understanding, I think understanding that you want to make a change for good or for whatever reason, I think that's the most important thing and understanding that change is positive. And you're talking it over with the people that, you know, that are in medicine. I, you know, I talked with some people and, and, and you know, kind of learned maybe, maybe this is something I want to go into, you know, pivoting from chemistry and it turned out it worked out. And so, you know, pivoting on different things and change, I think, I think it's a good thing. And I think, you know, for women um, and girls out there who, you know, who want to go to a career, you know, I just say, just be strong in, in, in your decision and be confident. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, and, and own it, own your decision, own what you're doing, because no matter what you're doing with that, you're, you're doing something and you're going to get something out of it. And so maybe it wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be. Then you learned from that. And I think that's, I think that's the most important takeaway. I like a growth mindset. Definitely. Definitely. It's like I did this and then I did this, but what it taught me was this, this, and this. In medicine, you know, in medical school, uh, you know, there's a stigma. What do you want to go into? Well, maybe you don't know, or I mean, I can't tell you times I pivoted. <laughs> I wanted to do emergency medicine, then neurology, because I was, I was like, oh, that's that sounds like fun. You, you you get all you get exposed to all these fun things, and then, you know, then you pivot. I, you know, looking at my research career on everything I published on, you would think it was this big zigzag of, wait, why did you publish in endocrinology? Why did you publish in neurology? Why did you publish in cardiology? 
but it's it's the path and it's the once again it's, it's all about just research and asking questions and, and kind of finding finding your love and, and it may take a bit 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 of time but you'll find it and and I've definitely found my home and my love of what I want to do and where I am and I couldn't be happier so once again the winding scenic path is the best path sounds good to me and what is coming up next for you what are you excited about well, once again, I'm excited to be is what we call an attending. Um, now I'm excited to kind of be kind of on the, the top of the totem pole and, and to, to be in that, that position now to be a role model. And, and people, once you're an attending, you kind of view differently. It's, it's really kind of strange. But I'm, I'm enjoying it, you know, that medical students and residents and fellows look up to me and I'm able to, to give them advice and to really start now being kind of transitioning into more of a mentor role that, like, that I had, these strong women that were in these mentor roles. And to be able to teach them and kind of give them advice along the way of what, what I learned. And to also promote them and prop them up. You know, say, hey, why don't, let, let's get you on as committees. Let's get you published. You know, let's, you know, let's really try to do, do some positive things. Um, and then, you know, really kind of ramping up my research. When, um, I think that's another thing that's important to really start putting my name out there and getting on the more of the national stage. So I can, I can start getting onto more committees and start making, making, making positive changes. So I think those are, those are things that are up next for me. So it's a, it's a, it's a new time. So with exciting things to come. Well, you are global. You are in our global network of dynamic women and supportive men as well. So uh, welcome to our network and um, whatever we can do to uh, connect you with other people as well uh, then we're really happy to support and spread the word and will you uh, come back and speak with us again when so we can keep in touch and follow your progress oh my gosh absolutely I would be honored I would love to, to continue to to let you know what I'm doing and, uh, and I'm sorry, you know, once again, I, I would love to hear what everyone else that's listening is doing as well. I mean, I think I think that's it's fascinating. You know, who who uh, who you can who you can touch and you can connect with as well. So no, I would love to stay in touch. Absolutely. Oh, oh, well, well, that is fantastic. Here now, a little bit of an update for you. Um, I have worked out the quote that I mentioned before. It is a quote. I thought I was would have liked to have taken credit for it, but unfortunately I can't because somebody else said it before me. And it was uh, Albert Einstein. I have no special talent. I am only passionately curious. There you go. Oh, I love that. I do love that. So uh, that, that's maybe thought, thought to leave us with. But uh, Casey, thank you so, so much for taking time out to speak with us. Uh, absolute pleasure chatting with you. And just thank you on behalf of the world for uh, all the work that you're doing and all those times that you've been with these layers and layers of PPE and just all the things you must have just had to have seen. And it just must have been so difficult. So just thank you to you and all the other medics doctors nurses surgeons clinicians researchers everybody people in the labs everybody just thank you on behalf of of womanthology thank you to all of them uh because yeah well where would we be without you so we oh, really appreciate all your thank hard you. work and everything that you do so you just take care and stay safe will do i wish everyone stays safe and once again thank you so much and i look forward to talking talking with you guys again shortly that's all we have time for this episode thank you so much for listening and remember if you want to support what we do then share the link for the show on social media and also subscribe your feedback is really important to us so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app that's all for now but join us in the next episode where we'll be hearing about women working in construction for now take care and stay safe <laughs>